Welcome to Cancer Conversations, a podcast series from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode from December 2015, Dr. Mark Pomerantz, a medical oncologist with Dana-Farber's Lank Center for Genitourinary Oncology, discusses the latest in research and treatment for prostate cancer, including PSA testing, gene therapy, and immunotherapy. Ellen Berlin from Dana-Farber's Communications Department joins him for the conversation. Let's get started. Dr. Pomerantz, how common is prostate cancer and who is most at risk? Prostate cancer is exceedingly common in the United States. It is the um, leading cause of uh, cancer among men in the United States when we exclude common skin cancers. And uh, it affects about 230,000 men each year. Rates are also increasing worldwide. It is also associated with 30,000 deaths each year this decade, um, making it the second leading cause of cancer-related death among men. What are the symptoms of prostate cancer? So prostate, the, the prostate is in a very busy neighborhood, um, just below the bladder, and it surrounds the tube that leads from the bladder to out the body, um, called the urethra. And if a tumor in the prostate is growing and squeezes on that tube or on the bladder, it could cause urinary symptoms, sometimes urinary retention. Um, if the disease spreads before it is detected, it often goes to the bones or the lymph nodes in the body and can actually cause pain. Um, but for most men in the United States who are screened with a PSA, prostate cancer is diagnosed before it causes any symptoms. So how is it diagnosed? So, um, though this is changing, and we may get into this a little bit later, um, most men um, uh, over the past 20 to 30 years um, have been getting their PSAs checked by their primary care physicians, and as the PSA slowly increases, they may be sent for a prostate biopsy. That biopsy is performed by a urologist, but if the, if the uh, biopsy shows prostate cancer, then the patient meets with the urologist, a radiation oncologist, a medical oncologist to decide the best way to manage the disease. And let's back up for one second. How is the PSA test given? What is it? So the PSA is a blood test. Um, prostate tissue makes a protein called prostate-specific antigen um, that uh, whose function in the human body is not entirely known, but it is a very good marker for the volume of prostate tissue in a person's body. Both normal prostate tissue and prostate tumor tissue make this stuff called PSA. And when, it is, it, when it's released from the cells in the prostate, it floats through the bloodstream and can be detected by a simple blood test. So the test comes back with a number and that's your marker for whether or not additional exactly. treatment or study is needed. That, that, that's, that's correct and it can be followed over time. Not only does the absolute level of the PSA give us some information, but the change over time mm. is also informative for our patients. I see. And a recent study from Dana-Farber and other institutions showed that fewer men are being screened um, through these PSA tests. And why is that and when should men be screened? Yeah, so th this, is, this is very controversial and, and, and complicated. It, it's, it's tough to understand because we, we are dealing with uh, imperfect data. Um, if I, I could take a step back mm -hmm. and explain why there is this controversy. If we were to take um, 165-year-olds off the street 
and magically remove their prostates and be able to chop it up and look under the microscope, the way we did in autopsy series, when autopsy was a very common practice in the hospital, we know that we would find prostate cancer in the majority of those patients. Mm. In a very large majority, if, if, if we look at autopsy series of men who died of natural causes. But, as we came in today, we didn't see men dropping dead left and right down the street of, of prostate cancer because most men die with prostate cancer, not of prostate cancer. And the reason that PSA screening is not commonly practiced in Western Europe or in Canada, and it's changing in the United States, which I'll talk about in a second, is because we do not want to unnecessarily find cancer. If men are going to die with the disease, not of the disease, there are consequences to finding it. It leads to the psychological impact of having a cancer diagnosis that, didn't, that a person didn't need to have. And perhaps more troubling, it leads to overtreatment of the disease. Cure of prostate cancer is associated with side effects. And we know that we are unnecessarily exposing men to the side effects associated with curing prostate cancer. On the other hand, and the United States largely has made this bargain, we also want to save the lives of the 30,000 men who die each year of prostate cancer. And we know that if we're able to catch those, those cancers early, we have a chance of curing them. Um, but it comes at a cost. With this imperfect screening tool, while we may, and, the, the, and I'll qualify that in a second, while we may be saving lives of, for a few men, we know that we are over-diagnosing many more. Mm. And it's a, it's a very tricky balance. Um, there was an important study that um, was uh, published within the past couple of months demonstrating that PSA screening um, has decreased in the United States. And it is consistent with guidelines that have been um, recommended by various bodies, including the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force uh, in 2012, saying that uh, PSA screening is not necessarily for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, this was based on, uh, this recommendation was based on data that unfortunately are very flawed. Um, and the truth is we, to this day, even though it has been um, almost 30 years since PSA screening has been used, we still do not yet have rock solid evidence that it is saving lives. Many of us in the business believe that time will tell us that it is, um, but uh, because it hasn't, um, PSA screening has not been uniformly and universally recommended. And we're seeing that in the, in the PSA screening trends in the United States since 2012. I can see that's a complicated issue. So perhaps the takeaway from that is that patients should have a conversation with their doctor about that, that, when that, that's, to be screened. That, that's exactly right. And that, that's what I recommend. Um, uh, be, because there is controversy and because there are consequences, um, both for finding and not finding a prostate cancer, mm -hmm. um, this is a conversation that patients need to have with their doctors. And their doctors should also feel free to consult people like us who are in the prostate cancer business if, if there are any gray areas. Right. Let's switch gears for a moment. In other cancers, um, notably breast cancer, there are certain genes that increase a person's risk for getting that cancer. And I'm wondering if there are any known um, genetic risks for prostate yes. cancer. Yes, and, and you asked 
this question that, that, that I didn't answer earlier, and so this is, this is it's a nice segue. So um, we are um, learning a lot about how and why men develop prostate cancer. Um, prostate cancer is highly heritable. Um, we estimate that the, the um, that prostate cancer risk is about 50 to 60 percent inherited and 40 to 50 percent environmental, things that men have been exposed to perhaps from in utero and through mm -hmm. adulthood. Um, the environmental component is very difficult to get our arms around, um, but the genetic component is tractable. The, um, the human genome is gigantic, but it, it's finite, mm -hmm. and we, we are learning a lot about the genetic inherited factors that predispose men to prostate cancer. Prostate cancer is a very complex disease, and the, the genetics reflect that. Um, there's been a lot of very exciting work that um, uh, the team at Dana-Farber has been a large part of um, over the past 10 years, um, isolating the genetic factors inherited from one's mother or one's father that puts one at higher risk of prostate cancer. But unlike a lot of other cancers, it seems to be that prostate cancer risk comes from many, many, to date, over a hundred separate genetic inherited variants that all contribute very, very little risk, but collectively add up to the entire amount of inherited risk. There are, that said, as, as, we're, as we're teasing all of that out, um, and it's, we've made a lot of progress over the past 10 years, there are genetic variants that one can inherit that puts per a person at much higher risk of prostate mm -hmm. cancer, just as there is with breast cancer. There's the famous BRCA2 gene that puts women at very, very high risk of breast cancer in a small percentage of patients, small percentage of breast cancer patients. We are finding that there may be genetic variants like that for prostate cancer, affecting a very small percentage of men who develop prostate cancer, and BRCA2 is one of them. Um, there have been a couple of very interesting studies um, um, just from the past couple of years that uh, suggests that a, a BRCA2 mutation, the same mutation that's associated with breast and ovarian cancer, puts men at higher risk of aggressive prostate cancer. Very interesting. Are there steps some men can take to reduce their risk of getting prostate cancer? This is uh, an area of uh, a lot of activity. Um, our colleagues in epidemiology have been working very, very hard over the past several decades trying to find um, lifestyle changes that mm -hmm. could put men um, in, in better stead in terms of prostate cancer um, risk. Uh, smoking uh, seems to be a factor that is associated with more aggressive prostate cancer. Obesity is emerging as a factor that puts men at higher risk and uh, lack of exercise. Mm. So a lot of the common things that, mm. that affect just about every other system in the body seems to affect prostate cancer. There's also been a lot of work in what we call chemo prevention, which just means medicines that one could take mm -hmm. to prevent prostate cancer. We're not there yet, but in, in, in the laboratory, we have our eyes on some targets that, that maybe we could drug to, to lead to prostate cancer prevention, but nothing in 2015. Interesting. So um, once someone's been diagnosed with 
prostate cancer. There's some discussion about, and you referenced this earlier, whether prostate cancer should be treated at all. And sometimes there's a watchful waiting approach, or sometimes there's something more aggressive. Can you talk about the different yes. kinds of treatments? If, if we suppose, and, and we do, that m most men, if they live long enough, are harboring a prostate cancer, and if we discover the prostate cancer through, say, screening, our first decision is, does this prostate cancer need to be cured? And there are many variables that we look at to put men in one bin or the other. This prostate cancer needs to be cured or this prostate cancer does not need to be cured. Um, some of these variables, I'm, I'm humbled to say, are fairly old, but, um, but reliable. Um, one of the most reliable variables that put men in one category of, or the other is something called the Gleason score, which is a measure of aggressiveness when we look under the microscope, when the pathologist looks under the microscope. And we, put, we can put patients into low, intermediate, and high-grade prostate cancer. And if the cancer under the microscope is intermediate or high-grade, we tend to want to cure that disease, especially if we plan on our patient living a long, long time. Another variable we look at is how much of that biopsy had cancer in it. If over half of the biopsy samples had cancer in it, we tend to put the patient in the category of we need to cure this thing. Mm. We also, we do pay attention to the PSA. If the PSA is greater than 10, those patients tend to have more aggressive disease and they need to be cured. Mm -hmm. But if all of those are negative, then just carefully watching over time, watching the prostate cancer is an option. We call this active surveillance. Mm. And with close monitoring, we are more and more confident that we can safely manage patients without needing immediate cure. And let's say someone has a high Gleason score or there's a time when you decide that treatment is in fact necessary for this patient. What's the typical treatment or is there a typical treatment? Yeah, so, so the, the, the first thing we want to do if, if we see an intermediate or high-grade prostate cancer is make sure that the disease has not spread beyond the prostate. If the disease spreads beyond the prostate, it's, a, um, it's, it's managed a little bit differently. Um, but if the disease is localized to that prostate gland, there are um, a couple of tried and true ways of eradicating it. One is to just take it out of the body mm. with, with a radical prostate surgery. And another is to treat it with radiation, which is done one of two ways. It's with external beam radiation from the outside or radiation pellets, seeds called brachytherapy, that are put into the prostate. An exciting area of research over the past 20 years that's ongoing and, and very much a part of what our group is doing at Dana-Farber is figuring out what treatments do we give along with the surgery or the radiation to improve the cure rates. Systemic treatments, treatment that goes everywhere that can improve the, the cures that we see from surgery and radiation. Interesting. And one new method of cancer treatment that's been getting some attention um, recently is gene therapy. So I'm wondering if you can discuss how this works and how it um, works specifically with prostate cancer. Yeah, so that's it, a, a big topic. Um, and there are many, many ways that scientists have hypothesized how gene therapy could help in the, in the treatment of cancer, prostate included. One of the most promising is to alter 
the tumor, the genetics of the tumor cells themselves so they can declare themselves to the immune system as, uh, an, uh, as a part of an immunotherapy program. Gene therapy has been in the news because for the first time, scientists in the laboratory are able to more um, precisely engineer in snippets of, of DNA and send them where we want them to go. The great limitation uh, to date with, with gene therapy is our, our precision is not good enough mm. to, to target the things that we want to target. Um, the genome is enormous. We might be able to get, uh, we might be able to treat the part of the genome that we want to treat, but there are so many effects off of our target mm -hmm. that it's not safe. Mm -hmm. That is changing, and it is a matter of time before it, it, it comes to the clinic. So it's promising, but some work is needed. Yes. That was the attempt. Yes. Great. So let's switch gears for a minute, a little bit, and talk about um, clinical trials. And um, maybe you can talk about why clinical trials are important, and specifically some of the clinical trials that are being conducted now for prostate cancer. Yes. So just about everything that we use to combat prostate cancer has gone through clinical trials. Clinical trials are a critical part of our overall war on cancer. And they're, they're, they're critical for a couple of reasons. We have to make sure that the treatments that we have are safe, and those, that those are our phase one trials. We have to make sure that we have the dosing right and there's some anti-cancer activity in the number of patients, which is our phase two trials. And then we have to test it against the standard of care to make sure that, that we are helping people in our phase three trials. And at, a, at, at our institution, we have all three going on um, and we have several trials in prostate cancer. And we have trials for many of the different stages along the natural history of the disease. We have trials going on for the patients that are just being, being treated up front with curative intent. We have treatments going on for patients whose disease has just escaped the prostate. Mm -hmm. And we have treatments for patients whose disease really has spread and they've been through several different therapies. Most of our trials tend to uh, be for the men who do have spread of disease and it's for a lot of, a, a lot of scientific financial reasons, though most trials are, in, are for that population. Mm -hmm. And we now have, we have all kinds of, we, we, we can talk about the different kinds of uh, uh, prostate treatments we're very excited about, but we do have uh, trials in place or brewing for um, newer forms of hormonal therapy, for immunotherapies, for targeted agents, mm -hmm. um, targeting um, molecu certain molecular pathways. Um, there, there, is, there is a lot going on right now. It's a very exciting time. I was say, it sounds like a really yeah. exciting time to be a prostate cancer Oh, it, it really is. This, is. this is why I got into the business, mm -hmm. because um, I, was, I was hopeful and, and could see the writing on the wall that there was going to be an a, a, a incredible amount of progress uh, this decade. And, and th there is. And you've seen progress from the time you started treating patients to today? We, we have drugs available now that are now FDA approved, let alone in clinical trials. We have drugs that are FDA approved now that are changing our patients' lives in, in, in this disease. It that's, really is an exciting time. That's exciting. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about uh, metastatic prostate cancer. And um, 
Can you talk a little bit about how the cancer spreads, particularly through the blood to the spine, and why do some cells choose one location in the body over another? This is, this is a huge area of research, and it's, a, a lot of it still is mysterious to us. Um, we know that prostate cancer cells home in on um, bone tissue, for example, above, above all else. We have, um, in the laboratory, we have some sense at a molecular level why that is, but we are still in the process of understanding it. And um, there, there have been efforts over the past 10 or so years to try and target the molecular communication between the prostate cell and the bone. We've made a lot of progress over the past um, two or three years catching the cells in transit. And those cells seem to be very, very informative in, in how best to treat our patients. But as to the why, a question a lot of us are interested in, we, 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 we still don't know. So a new study recently found a link between hormone therapy used to treat prostate cancer and Alzheimer's disease. And I'd like to know sort of what you know about what causes this connection and will it change to, uh, will lead to a change in the protocol? Yeah. Hormonal therapy is the mainstay of prostate cancer treatment. Prostate cancer cells are addicted to testosterone, to the male hormone and the metabolites of testosterone. And by, by denying men the ability to make testosterone, we induce remissions. We've discovered and we've rediscovered just over the past five years how deep and fundamental this addiction is mm -hmm. until the very, very latest stages of this disease, the prostate cancer cell depends on the male hormone and the male hormone pathway. However, the rest of the body likes the male hormone too. And when we rob the cancer cell of testosterone, we inevitably uh, rob the rest of the body of testosterone, and that has consequences. Mm -hmm. There are a number of side effects to hormonal therapy, which again is the backbone of prostate cancer treatment. We keep men on hormonal therapy through the entire natural history of the disease if the disease is not cured. And they include loss of libido, decrease in muscle mass, weight gain, particularly in the abdomen, hot flashes, decrease in bone density. And there are other effects that may be present that we haven't yet systematically detected. There is some controversy regarding an association between this hormonal therapy, taking away the testosterone, and heart disease. Mm. Um, a, a link that is controversial. Um, some believe that there's a clear link, some believe that it's a, a link in some people, and some believe that it doesn't exist. And Alzheimer's is another one. There, there, Alzheimer's disease seems to be associated with our men on hormonal therapy based on a recent study, but it really is at this point just an association. There's not a causal link that, we, that we're aware of yet. Uh, interesting. And how has prostate cancer changed over the past five or 10 years um, in terms of both treatments and um, screening? Okay, so I will, I'll, I'll start with um, uh, treatment. Um, there, there have been uh, significant changes over the past five years. As we have improved our hormonal therapies, we've discovered, and perhaps we should have expected, but it, it's, it's come as a surprise to a lot of us, um, that by more um, dramatically, more accurately, and more strongly targeting 
testosterone and its receptor called the androgen receptor, we can induce remissions even in men whose disease is growing through our low level of testosterone state. And the hormonal therapies just over the past five years have been improving. We have two, two terrific drugs that are now FDA approved that both deny uh, the cell's testosterone in a more dramatic way. We have another medicine that blocks the androgen receptor itself in a way we've never been able to do before. And we, we've proven that men are living longer as a result of these drugs. And there are more drugs in clinical trial that may be even better than the current generation. So that, that's been a really exciting development. The, the, next, the, the, the next exciting development um, in prostate cancer will be immunotherapy. And we're particularly excited about immunotherapy because it makes a lot of sense. One reason why cancer has been so difficult to get our arms around once it metastasizes is that it is free to evolve. And one of the special things about the immune system is that it can evolve along with the cancer. If we can teach the immune system to fight the cancer cells and fight the cancer cells as the cancer cells are changing. And we, um, there has been incredible progress in certain cancers such as melanoma, now in, in, our, in, in my area of expertise, renal cell carcinoma and bladder cancer. And it's a matter of time before we figure out how to use the immune system to fight prostate cancer. Interesting. One of our viewers uh, submitted a question and would like to know how are PET scans used or are they used to de detect prostate cancer? Oh, it's, it's a really good question. We haven't talked about imaging. And um, when I was talking earlier about placing men in one category or another, does, do, do, does a, a man have a, a cancer that needs to be cured or does not need to be cured? We're increasingly leaning on imaging. And um, the greatest strides over, over the past 10 years has been in prostate MRIs. Um, the MRIs have become more powerful, more accurate. We have some of the leading radiologists here and at Brigham and Women's Hospital reading these special prostate MRIs, and they are beginning to inform how we group our patients and their, the aggressiveness of their prostate cancer. PET imaging, um, at least the PET imaging that's, that's available to our, our patients at Dana-Farber, is not the greatest study for prostate cancer. Not all prostate uh, tissue and prostate cancer tissue is PET-AVID, yet there are other types of um, radionucleotide CT scans that are very informative. There's something called choline-11 that, that, that seems to be very informative, has been in clinical trials and is used in, at certain institutions around the country. Prostate imaging is, is going to change the field. For example, I'll give you an example of where it's going to change things, are active surveillance patients. So the patients that we don't treat up front do need to be followed very, very closely. And the current standard of care is that they get a PSA every three months mm -hmm. and a biopsy every year or two or three going forward. But the biopsies have side effects associated with them. Imaging is going to change all of that. We will be able to use imaging to substitute for biopsies to know when a prostate cancer becomes dangerous and needs to be cured. Are there um, demogra certain demographics? Um, yes. So, so as I said, I'm, 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 thank you for mentioning this. So prostate cancer, as I said, has a highly, highly heritable component, and there are some ancestral groups that have a much higher risk of prostate cancer than others. We know that the rates, for example, in the United States have been higher than in East Asia. Um, interestingly, when families from East Asia move to the United States, rates of 
prostate cancer increase almost to the average in the United States after a generation or two. But African American men are at particularly high risk of prostate cancer, at uh, as, as high risk of prostate cancer as any group we're aware of in the world. And um, so our screening recommendations for men of African ancestry, particularly West African ancestry, I should be specific, West African ancestry, or, or men with any family history of prostate cancer, do need special attention when it comes to screening. And, and the conversation with their primary care doctors needs to happen for those, particularly, for those particular two groups of patients. And when you were, um, I want to talk about you a little bit, when you mm -hmm. were in medical school and thinking about a specialty, what was it that led you to prostate cancer? Well, I, I was interested in cancer in general um, based on the excitement around figuring out the biology. Um, I've, I have a lifelong interest in evolutionary biology and much of cancer biology is the study of evolution in action. When I was in medical school, we were just starting to be able to understand the genetics of this process. And through that, I, I had some sense of the, 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 the promise and the ability to help a, a lot of people by understanding the biology. For prostate cancer in particular, it was based mainly on my mentor here, Phil Kantoff. Mm who is a pioneer in um, prostate cancer medical oncology. And in working with him and, and seeing the kind of doctor that I could aspire to be, I, I ended up in the prostate cancer business. I think um, I'd like to ask a final question, which is what's the most exciting prostate cancer research taking place today? What, what excites you as you think about looking ahead in terms of prostate cancer? So, so right now, I, I think that one of the most exciting things that's going on is as we study the genetics of metastatic tumors, which we're doing for the first time, a major paper was published this year that was a, a heroic collaborative effort between our group and a couple of the other um, major prostate cancer groups around the country, studying the, uh, the, the genome of metastatic tumors. And as we understand that better, and understand how the genetics of metastatic tumors relate to the genetics of the primary tumors that we discover when men are diagnosed, we're going to be able to gain clues into the genetics of metastases. Mm. And once we understand what genes, what proteins are involved in that process, I think what we will finally realize what has been a long time goal of targeting therapy to manage the disease as it's evolving. This is an exciting time to be in cancer oh, research. Oh, it, it, it really, really is. Yes. Our thanks to Dr. Pomerantz for joining us and sharing the latest in prostate cancer research and treatment. I'm Ellen Berlin. Thanks again and have a great day. This has been Dana-Farber's Cancer Conversations, featuring Dr. Mark Pomerantz of Dana-Farber's Lank Center for Genitourinary Oncology. To download more episodes and learn about other cancer podcast series, visit DanaFarber.org slash podcasts.